Hello, everyone, and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. My name is Angela Christian Wilkes, and I will be your host for today. Now, don't panic. Marissa won't be joining us. Sam won't be joining us. Anna won't be joining us. I didn't eat them. I feel like I should probably put that disclaimer up front. We're just doing something a little bit different today. Yeah, it's it's nice, it's different, it's unusual. This will be the first episode in our new series we're calling The Short Corner. And The Short Corner will basically be a home for all things women's football that don't necessarily fit in with our usual programming. So our usual programming being coverage of the Tillies, of the Dub, of Australians overseas. But the stuff that we put on the short corner is hopefully still relevant and still of interest to our audience. And just to make things a little bit more confusing, this particular pod will fit within a series under that series, um, which will be focusing on academic research that is happening in the women's football space. For those who might not know, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, well, actually, everyone knows that, but I'm a bit of a nerd in the academic sense. I'm currently doing a PhD at Deakin University um, in the area of sociology, and my research is looking at the experiences of women who make media about women's football. Uh, so, yes, that does include myself. Um And being in that space, I've noticed there's a lot of really interesting research that's going on. The feminist sports researcher space in general is just a fantastic community. And I was just hoping to use this platform as a way to share a bit about what's happening there and get it to an audience that it might not necessarily reach if it's in a journal paper or an academic book. This Miniseries will be in partnership with Griffith University's Gender, Sport and Society Symposium that is coming up on the 28th of July. It's going to be held at Griffith Uni's campus at Southbank in Brisbane and the symposium has a focus on the FIFA 2023 Women's World Cup, which is very exciting. So thank you to Adele Pavlidis at Griffith University um, for her work on that symposium and yeah, for the partnership here. For today's episode, I'm joined by Aish Ravi. Aish is basically the Hermione Granger of the feminist sports researcher space. She's in the final stages of a PhD at Monash University in the Faculty of Education there, and her research is looking at the experiences of women coaches in Australia, in football specifically as well. She's also the co-founder of the Women's Coaching Association, has played so many different sports, has been on a range of different boards and committees as well. And yeah, she's a fantastic chat. So I'm, I'm just going to let that do the talking. But before we get stuck in, I did want to um, pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands this conversation was recording on. For myself, that's the Wurundjeri people here in Nam or Melbourne. And for Aish, that was the Atacapa people um, in Houston, Texas area of the USA. Anyway, let's let's get into it. Thank you so much for being here today, Aish. To begin with, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your PhD research? So what you're hoping to find out with this project, the topic, what you've done like to get the data, just 
the too long didn't read if you if you can yeah awesome well thanks so much Angela like it's um a real privilege to be on here I love you know the work that you all do um on this podcast and love listening to it so yeah really excited to chat with you all PhD things today and all you know of, of course it's on football so um, yeah, so my PhD research is um, exploring the lived experience of women football coaches um, in Australia. So I'm looking at it like a from a community coach perspective and an elite coach perspective. Um, so I've collected um, data from over 200 women via a survey, um, but also conducted um, 30 semi-structured interviews with, um, uh, with like community coaches as well as elite coaches and um, collected uh, semi-structured interviews from 15 administrators, both local and um, at a national level. Yeah, that's a pretty involved project. When you set out to do this, I suppose, is there something you were hoping to find out? What were the kind of questions driving that? Yeah, so my PhD research really um, stemmed a lot from my experiences in football, um, so I'm a business and economics teacher by trade. Um, so while working like in a secondary school setting, um, you know, we had to take um, a part, like we had to do some form of co-curricular, co-curricular activity to just kind of fill up our teaching load. And um, I was kind of tasked with coaching football. Um, so my playing experience really has really been limited to the school context. So growing up, um, I didn't really play much football outside of school. It was really, I've learned everything I know about football within that school context. And um, so, you know, that was kind of considered in, you know, the school giving me the responsibility to coach the school's first um, girls soccer team. From that experience, um, in a sense, I teach VC business um, and economics and IB VC business and economics as well. So while, uh, you know, in a classroom setting, I was quite like, no one really questioned my my knowledge or my credibility or anything like that. But when I went out to the football field, I was just really surprised and perplexed by the amount of like questions and odd looks I kind of got um, and people just pretty much asking me what I knew about football. And I kind of felt like I had to keep justifying, you know, my knowledge um, in that space. And I was just really confused because I was like, you know, teaching and coaching for me are, are very similar in the sense you're, you know, tasked with, you know, imparting knowledge on a group of people, motivating them, encouraging them to achieve their best. So I was a little bit, you know, puzzled by why I was being, you know, treated differently um, in a classroom and then, you know, on a football field, I just, you know, changed my uniform really. And um, yeah, I was just kind of like questioned by not only some of the students, but their parents um, and other teachers. Um, it was just, I felt like, you know, they, they were like, what do you know about football? Indians don't play, you know, in the World Cup. As soon as I kind of said, I've really only played at the um, school sport level, you know, then they were like, I think they expected me to have like coached or, or played at a significant level. Um, and obviously school sport really wasn't that cre- credible. Um, so, yeah, so my school, um, that kind of affected my confidence in the coaching because I was just like, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm learning football. I'm not an expert in football tactically, um, but I am very good with people and um, I know how to teach. So that's really what... Um, you know, kind of motivated motivated me to stay in that uh, coaching environment. And um, I was very fortunate that the school at the time, like my confidence was a bit under. So they were like, okay, we'll invest in your professional development. We really want you to coach this team. So they invested in me to go do my C license. 
So mm. again, I think this speaks sort of a broader issue, especially in Victoria. Um, like the school was very like AFL heavy, like they didn't really know much about soccer football and therefore they didn't really know how to, you know, they, th- they thought the first level of professional development for a coach was to get your C licence. I guess now we know that there's many other level like grassroots coaching qualifications that, you know, a coach can go to to acquire some knowledge and some confidence that one are less time consuming and a lot less expensive. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the time I didn't really know much, any different either because I was like I didn't really know much about the football ecosystem and, you know, the level of qualifications. So during my school holidays I gave up, you know, two weeks of my school holidays um, to go on this coaching course, the C licence. And on that course I was just, that was another experience for me. I was just like the one of two women on that course And I was just really shocked, again, at how I was treated on that course. Um, And I was quite puzzled by, you know, the educational content on this course as well that was deemed to be education. I was surprised we were all sitting in a classroom in, like, you know, PE gear. I remember, like, I first walked into this course wearing jeans, a jumper and boots because I didn't know that there was, like, a you know, certain attire or uniform that people had to kind of like wear, which was like, you know, their tracksuit pants and whatnot to sit in the classroom. Um, and and not, I'm not a health and PE teacher either. So a lot of the teachers on the course have often had that HP background where they kind of, you know, wear those clothes on a day-to-day basis. And so they knew kind of how to dress as a coach and that sort of thing. But I just kind of went to learn as, a, as an educational course. And then I very, that was a lot, after the first day I was in like, you know, I tried to look the part and, you know, wore like my PE clothes and that sort of stuff, like my sporty attire. Um, but yeah, I was also just really um, surprised on that course that in order to be considered a good coach, you had to have some form of playing ability because they made us do a lot of these drills. And, you know, often it was, you, you know, there was a huge pressure to be able to be a good player in order to be considered a good coach. Um, so I was just, again, quite like, you know, puzzled by this because I was like, you know, when you're coaching um, people, you're often like teaching skills. You don't have to be an expert in, I guess, playing or doing in order to teach. And so that was really the, you know, in my master of teaching course and, you know, my educational degrees, I've, I've never, that's never been the philosophy, but I was just really surprised that on a sport field and in a, I guess, a coaching, uh, sport coaching course, that was the, the precedence that you kind of had to have had some form of playing ability in order to be considered a good coach. So that experience really is what um, spurred me to kind of figure out, hey, is this happening to more people? On that coaching course, one of the best things was I met so many cool people. And I did have a few like, you know, uh, uh, coaches that were on that course that I've, you know, I'm still friends with. Um, they've been incredible mentors for me. And they've provided me with opportunities after that course to actually coach in the National Premier League at a junior level. And then, you know, from that, I got opportunities to coach senior women at a at a community club. And I've been quite successful in my coaching. So very um, fortunate to have won, you know, premierships or championships in at those levels. And I got opportunities to coach the school sport Victoria um, under 18 soccer team, which I'm still currently coaching at the moment. Um, so, yeah, so for me, I, I kind of feel like on that course, one of the most valuable things was meeting people that gave me opportunities that believed in me and kind of gave me some time to grow and learn the game in the coaching environment at a community level and NPL level, that was when my other question came 
that was quite like, you know, um, just wanting to know more about. And that was where are the women coaches, you know, in these settings, not, I not only was the only one on the coaching course, but I was, you know, literally one of the only women in many of these club settings and on the field on game day. Um, and, you know, got to the point where I had a, a male team manager and the referee would always go approach them to figure out, you know, to shake their hand or get the team sheet or ask any questions. So I was just really confused as to, again, still why even after doing a coaching license and attaining some form of coach education in that C license, I still was not considered to be a coach. Um, and, you know, whereas there were people around me that had not attained that coaching qualification and or not have had, you know, really much educational qualifications who were lauded and celebrated for not having really achieved much. So I was just really puzzled. So that's really what led me to doing this PhD to try and understand like where are the women coaches and if they, and they do exist. That's what I found out there's, there's plenty of them. And I really am, uh, you know, interested in wanting to understand what their experiences are um, in coaching. So not only, um, at a club but also I want to know what their experiences are in coach education as well so and I, I'm trying to understand what the barriers and enablers are for women coaches um, so then we can better support them to succeed and we can improve the pathways for women coaches. Yeah amazing and it's I think quite a unique journey um, and and you're so right in the sense that I think a lot of people instinctively assume that a C license is like the next step or the best way to develop just from my experience in the community space formalized a little bit as well when we ask for you know ex-coaches to have a C license if they want to inquire about a particular role or whatever it is but in reality it might not be the C license that makes someone a good coach or a good fit. You took on the the girls the school's soccer team you're a sporty gal so but I'm intrigued you ended up with a sport that you hadn't necessarily encountered much before then like I said uh, my only uh, main experience in uh, playing uh, football like soccer was in school sport and I was quite fortunate when I did play school sport at the school that I was at I captained their team and we had some success in you know winning um, you know championships um, and premierships with that um, team um, so I kind of they, the teachers and the schools in, in this system kind of knew that, oh, I had played at, at that level, at uh, the first level at the school and I'd captain their team. So they're like, oh, well, if you can do that, then here, um, you know, coach a, a, a team. So, yeah, and I, I think like the school always prefers to have teachers um, take their um, teams, mainly because it's, you know, They'd like to keep it somewhat in-house, but it's also cheaper for the school rather than outsourcing it to a bunch of like private uh, coaches and organisations. So, um, yeah, I got tasked with doing that and I was like, I'm happy to do that. It's much better than drama or dance or something else that I was not quite interested in. So, um, yeah, they so soccer was really what they um, tasked me with. AFL-wise, I love playing footy, um, but, you know, they didn't really have a women's team um, at the school. Um, and I love playing cricket as well, um, but they didn't really have a women's team for that either. So it was really soccer that was kind of leading the way in, I guess, having a, a women's team in these schools and having, you know, quite established, uh, you know, football programs for the women at the school. So um, that's really, yeah, how I kind of got into soccer coaching. 
football is so lucky to have you and that it <laughs> turned out that way. But I guess we'll come back to that in a little bit as well. The commonalities across a lot of different sports, because yeah, it's not just football that has some of these issues. Just jumping back slightly as well, you mentioned there was a little bit of a, sounds like a racialized aspect to how people reacted to you or treated you in this environment. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit. Um, Like you mentioned, like people assumed because you're Indian that you wouldn't have any knowledge or experience or understanding of football. Yeah, there certainly is. Like there's not only like there's a racial aspect, there's a gendered aspect. And I think that's really what my research is trying to highlight is that there are various intersections that, you know, uh, you know, privilege um, certain people and, you know, disadvantage others. And um, for me, I kind of felt like I did have a bit of a double whammy in these settings because, one, I didn't look the part. Um, but without really ever getting to know uh, me as a person, people would just judge me off my colour and my appearance. And that's something that, you know, I can't really change. Um, you know, I can't, you know, wipe the colour off my skin. Um, so it's, you know, that that's something like I, I kind of feel like that's where we need to, you know, have an intersectional approach to really understanding these issues um, often it's very predominant in research, as we know, there's a very like Eurocentric, um, you know, approach, Western Eurocentric approach to, um, you know, gender. And, you know, we often link it directly to sexuality. Um, and, you know, we look at those intersections, gender and sexuality, you know, we can consider sexuality, but sometimes sexuality for some people, you can, um, you know, hide that. Um, whereas, you know, I guess when you're a person of colour, it's not like you can just, you know, hide or anything. People just see you as that. And that's what we've, um, I hope that my research can really privilege is that we've we've really got to understand, um, you know, people, their lived experience, what their, what, what ticks their box and what doesn't. And we've got to design um, programs um, to attract and retain women coaches accordingly. Um, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, not, women are not like a homogenous group we're not all the same um and we're not just you know you know tiny men where we there are certain differences we've got to understand what they are and and see what motivates us and you know how we can cater for that Mm -hmm. so yeah for me I, I do think there's a lot of these stereotypes around you know who's a footballing nation who's not who's considered to be a good footballer who's not and we even see it in coaching sometimes when some of the coaches that do embody a bit more of a some some masculine features are privileged in that environment and that comes down to a lot of you know the 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 power that that football structure holds and right now you know it it has been a system that's built by men for men and we're just kind of adding on women and then, you know, just considering them as all, all the same. So that approach is just not going to work. It's not going, it's definitely, you know, not sustainable. And we've got to rethink that. You've paired this research. I, I don't know if paired is the right word. The Women's Co- Coaching Association, you, you co-founded that. I'm interested when that kind of came about and um, how it may have been informed by your PhD research. Yeah, so the Women's Coaching Association, um, it was founded in 2020 by Julia Hay and I. And Jules, um, you know, we really bonded and connected over coaching. So Jules is a footy coach, so Australian rules football coach. And, um, you know, we just, you know, she was uh, at the time completing some research in this space as well. And we were just, you know, we'd always have coaching chats. We were just always like, 
you know, we just chat about our coaching experience and realize a lot of them are actually quite similar. A lot of our challenges are quite the same. And some of those challenges were around uh, the professionalism of, of coaching. Jules is a teacher as well. And we were quite puzzled because in teaching, you know, it's very professional. When you get a teaching job, like most professional jobs, you sign a contract, you know exactly how much you're getting paid, um, you know what the hours are. And if there's any form of like, you know, uh, that dispute, um, there's a union that that's there that you can consult, that can seek some support from, like support from legally, um, you know, in terms of your well-being, mental health. A lot of these um, unions have like an EAP system, like a, um, a counselling form like service um, that, you know, people, those professionals can actually seek out and, you know, get some support from. So what we thought is there's nothing really there for coaches. So this was something that I experienced is, you know, one of the clubs that I actually coached at early on, it's a big club, big name. And, you know, I was, I think a lot of like, they have that power and privilege in a way where they just kind of think you're lucky to have a job here. So here you go. So I worked and, you know, working in the NPL is no joke in the sense you do have to, you know, coach three times a week plus weekends, even though your, your game is, you know, at a certain time, you end up dedicating your whole like day at the club. And there's a lot of time emotion involved. And so at the time I'd signed a contract that attracted me to this certain club. And, you know, the terms of that contract were not adhered to. Like, so for example, I did not get paid what I was uh, told I would get paid. And I was just like, well, in teaching, if this happened to me, and it's rarely that would happen, like, you know, I know exactly where to go. But when it as a coach, I was like, where do I go? There's no one to support. The governing bodies don't care because that's not their responsibility. And the thing is, a lot of these clubs are all run like their own business. So that piece of paper doesn't really have any form of like, you know, legally binding agreement. And that's if there is a piece of paper. Often coaches, and we still to this day in 2023, people just have handshake agreements um, as, you know, and that's considered acceptable. So what the Women's Coaching Association is, again, it's in its early stages, started during COVID. Initially, we did it to, um, and this is what we're still working on, is um, raising awareness, making sure that women coaches are heard of, their stories are being shared, their voices are being amplified. Um, and then the second phase is, and this will happen when we get some funding um, to keep, you know, keep the association alive and more sustainable, is, you know, wanting to run some campaigns, promotions uh, around, you know, attracting, retaining um, and developing women coaches, but also developing more um, tailored coach education. So as I mentioned before, from my experience and from my research, we do need a tailored approach to coach education. Um, mm. And then lastly is advocacy and having some form of like, you know, support system for women coaches so then they can call us and say hey I need some advice on this can you please help me I need to talk to you about this I need to maybe just have a like a vent about coaching have some form of well-being like you know well-being support system for women coaches and and also educate it's not just obviously about the women but like we'd love to educate men on how they can best support be allies for women that are in coaching because we know that they hold a lot of the power in this space they often are in those roles where they hire coaches and we need to educate them on how they can perhaps have better strategies around attracting, retaining and supporting women coaches. 
yeah, that's what the Women's Coaching Association, I felt like no one's doing that. And there are associations out there, but they're not really, ha- they don't really have that that lens around, you know, genuinely perhaps caring, supporting and knowing how to care and support for women. Yeah. And I suppose that's where your research comes in as well. You've got, you've got the receipts on yeah. <laughs> how to do this. It, it's really interesting you saying all of that. There's quite a few parallels, I guess, with the research I'm doing on women in media and in sports media, that same like that lack of formal structures to kind of protect you. And everyone is exposed to that or like a lot of people will be exposed to that or experience, have uh, poor experiences with things like a lack of formal roles or lack of yeah. support or that kind of thing. But the experience isn't always gen- gendered for yeah. a, a lot of people. You've, you've mentioned there was the kind of experience of being a coach and it prompted all these questions and that's really informed your research. But yeah, how did you end up in your PhD? I know you're very passionate about research and, and the kind of powers that it can give give you. Yeah, I mean, like like I said, I've, I've you know, I'm really passionate about this because I've lived it, you know, in the terms of a coach. And I'd love to have coached or have options or pathways to coach a national team or one day. Um, but, you know, I felt in those systems and those structures, I'm not really wanted in these spaces. And no matter how much I win, um, you know, I'm still not going to be seen the same as someone perhaps that comes from a ex past, you know, professional playing background or, and, or looks a certain ways or, you know, talks a certain way, you know, born in a certain place. So I'm, I'm not, and so I kind of like, you know, I know that. So I've, you know, I've done my C license. I've also done my B license experience very much the same. I actually went to a different state to do the B license. I went to Brisbane to complete that. And I was the only woman on that coaching course. Um, and that was definitely intimidating. You know, you rock up, you get like a, a men's size uniform that doesn't really fit you. And then I just felt like really like I don't want to move in this. So I didn't really participate as much as I could on that course. But I met, again, some amazing people that I still keep in touch with today that have given me opportunities to, you know, perhaps further progress and grow. But they've been quite limited to that community, um, you know, setting. And so, you know, I'm quite passionate to see how can we, you know, provide a lot of these community coaches more opportunities to perhaps gain some elite playing experience or, you know, coaching experience and have some form of exposure in those settings. Because right now there's a whole lot of people that are just being closed off to these pathways and opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think this is a real problem. And I I think, you know, sport organisations need to take this a lot more seriously because right now we're all working towards, you know, 50-50 playing participation. That's fantastic. But right now if you're, you know, a man you have a double dip. You can coach in the women and girls space or the men's, you know, boys and men's space. You have pathways and opportunities that are there. You can see yourself in these roles, such as being a coach. But for women and girls, one, a lot of our players don't aspire to be coaches. They don't see really many women succeeding in these coaching roles. And if anything, they just hear some really like negative stories Um why would you want to be a coach? But this is a real problem because right now we are going to lose our pipeline of talent, you know, if we don't fix this. So we see, you know, an increased number of, you know, women uh, players, you know, having injuries, um, you know, 
what's an avenue what's a pathway for them you know not everyone is doing a degree alongside being a professional athlete so you know we've really got to sort this out and make sure players at all levels whether it's at community whether it's at an elite level have an option to be a coach and if they if that option is there that needs to be really clear as to what the pathways are um mm. you know it shouldn't be someone should have to sponsor you you know people should be able to do any form of education whenever you, whenever you want um and that should be advertised it should be promoted they should be um you know encouraged to go on these courses um, rather than just, you know, knowing the right people, the night, you know, having some money or, you know, so so forth. So like, you know, one of those, you know, forms of capital, you, you've got to, we've got to make this like promote it and make it socially acceptable that women can coach. They are coaching um, and they're quite successful and that anyone can be a coach. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, and, and this yeah. is the thing, it's not just coaching, but coach education as well. So one of the things that I'm quite surprised at in teaching, anyone can't just walk into a classroom and teach and say, I'm a teacher. You've got to actually do some form of like qualification um, and, you know, to in order just to step into that classroom to get accredited. And then, you know, each year that accreditation needs to be renewed and, and so forth. But as a coach educator, often, you know, you don't have to have any form of educational experience, really. Mainly, the main form of uh, a criteria right now is, you know, your level of playing experience or who you know um, and what you know about football, I guess. But, you know, in teaching, we we get trained so extensively about pedagogy, how to teach, how to design, um, you know, content that's, you know, meaningful and engaging and how to assess that whereas in in football or in sport it's kind of like a free-for-all there's not really that regulation that professionalism so if you don't have that how can you have people aspiring to be in those roles and take it seriously yeah um and I think yeah going back to what you said earlier about the assumptions made around playing ability and that correlating to being suited to be a coach and and that kind of thing that's really interesting because uh just in my experience this is anecdotal but like good coaches are good people people um and it's not necessarily and to be able to communicate the knowledge that you might have about football you need to have particular skills in communication and um in being able to relate to people and yeah there's there's a whole plethora of, of soft skills maybe that's going back again masculine yeah. environments and masculine frameworks we don't necessarily highlight the importance of those soft skills as much as um we should in in yeah football. and now we see it in some codes like it's celebrated for men to finally like you know care about their players and <laughs> show a you know I guess more emotive side but you know, if women sometimes are seen to be doing that, they're persecuted for being, you know, as you said, soft or incapable or you're not as confident. And and this, it's it's damaging, you know. If we don't believe in women and if we don't genuinely give them opportunities to enter and succeed, you know, it's like that that doubt kills you as a, you know, as a person. It's like climbing Mount Everest and knowing that no one around you really believes in you. 
It's a bit of a laugh. It's a joke. Um, and it's hard for someone to sustain that emotional energy um, and to keep climbing that mountain, you know, when they know that, that that support is genuinely not there and, you know, they're kind of, you know, up against that big hill, big mountain. Yeah, was that that confidence um, side of things, did that come up in your findings? Yeah, so like what we're finding, like what I've found is, um, you know, women, like I said, they they do tend to doubt themselves and they do lack um, certain confidence, but that confidence is like systemically ingrained and built. We have created that, you know, lack of confidence in women. Um, so, you know, we've got to do better at making sure that we, we again, celebrate women, how women seen, we need to see them succeeding. And this comes back to, you know, you, you know, they say that you can be who you can see or you can't be, you know, who you can't see kind of thing. We've got to change that visibility, um, you know, and make sure that we, ha- we, we, we improve that because right now women are starting to doubt themselves. They are doubting themselves. They're like, oh, um, you know, there's a crisis of confidence. They won when they do get a job, they kind of feel like, am I here? There's that imposter syndrome, you know, element where it's like, am I good enough? Um, and then you'll keep doubting yourself and you're playing these mental games. So to deal with some of the other high pressure, um, you know, roles of coaching, you know, you're, you you get burnt out eventually because so much of your time and energy is, is occupied in combating this confidence and imposter syndrome that we've actually put on women. You know, mm-hmm. we've done this. This is not that, and this is a thing. Right now we see a lot of people blaming women. They don't want to coach. They're not good coaches. There's all these narratives around, you know, fixing the women or blaming the women. And we've got to really change that because it's not the women that's, that, that's our fault here, you know. Um, we've got to fix the system and that system is broken. So we've got to invest a lot of our time and energy at doing that. And a lot of the women and girls who do succeed in sport at coaching at an administration level we all collectively need to like you know take some responsibility in doing more being more and you know try you know change some of those structures to privilege you know women yeah I roll my eyes a bit when you get you know the the leadership courses that are like we're gonna teach you how to be more confident women and it's like yeah that that is part of the issue but it's like only going to address so much if I, you know, take on a girl boss persona and try and push through those barriers are still going to be there. And, and we see like, you know, a lot of like, for example, in football, we have now and in some other sports as well, like female only coaching courses, you know, as an initiative um, to get more women and girls into coaching. Now that's great. Sometimes, and I found in my research, some women and girls actually do feel more confident, more safe in that environment, um, in a female coaching course. But then what happens when they leave that environment? You know, your traditional club environment is not female only. You know, so for example, if these women and girls feel safe in that female only coaching environment because they're not getting bullied, harassed, you know, we've got to fix and like address those things first because. You know, they may feel safe in these, you know, environments, but then as soon as they enter a club setting, they're going to encounter a lot of those same challenges and barriers there. So we've really got to make sure that we we fix the whole system and don't just have like a, you know, side female-only coaching course. Because also some women, especially women who have had significant amount of playing experience um, at an elite level, 
they see that the the um, female in the coaching courses are inferior in terms of knowledge um, mm. compared to that of a co-ed environment because they also have internalized this belief that you know men are no men's knowledges of football are a lot better than that of women's so you know we've got to fix that too because ultimately they're the same course same curriculum the same thing that's being delivered the, just the environments are different but right now we're seeing it as like creating a safe space for these women and girls to encourage them to get in but what we're also seeing is yep they may feel safe temporarily but then when they actually enter a club setting whether that be at a community or an elite level they're encountering the same barrage of you know negative experiences so we've got to really have a you know targeted focused approach towards minimizing those negative experiences for women and girls going a bit of a nerdy question I suppose but what um schools of thought have kind of shaped your PhD research theory I don't know if anyone wants to listen to this but I mean my whole uh uh, research is being in well I'm, I'm using a Foucauldian feminist approach to analyzing my data so trying to understand um you know how these this like what these discourses are within this football space within this coaching space that actually privilege you know men over women or privilege certain forms of knowledges over others so that's really um what I'm I'm looking to you know just understand what are those discourses what are the women saying in these settings what are the administrators in this um setting saying and right now we see and uh you know administrators some don't, do not believe that there is a problem. You know, the fact that some administrators think that the reason why there's a lack of women coaching is because women do not want to coach. Now, mm. you know, if we have that idea um, that women do not want to coach, we're obviously not going to invest in that space and really care much about, you know, developing or improving pathways for women coaches. So that's quite detrimental to women coaches. We also have these discourses that, you know, all coaches are the same, men or women, you know, male, female, whatever, they're all the same. There is no gender. Mm-hmm. So we see this like, you know, gender blindness often um, that's being, you know, said in, in these spaces that, again, you know, disadvantage women. We know we're not all the same. We've got to acknowledge that. And that sometimes those discourses can, again, um, you know, privilege certain people over others. And it, again, makes that these organisations kind of be like, oh, we don't have to really focus on, on you know, women specifically. It's just investing coaching in general. And if women take it up, that's cool. If they don't, then it's their fault. Like, you know, it's a really easy, like, scapegoat, scapegoat for a lot of these organisations um, so that's what I'm, I'm focused on trying to understand what these discourses are and then revealing them. So, you know, through things like talking to you and through articles, through, you know, papers, um, I've done a poster yeah. presentation and, and, you know, so I'm really big on trying to make change in the actual system. Like I don't want all this research to be stuck in some journal article that, you know, very few people have access to or only academics have access to. So, I'd like to make sure that this information is provided to organisations, so at a state and at a, um, you know, national level and even international and see how we can genuinely, you know, have, you know, targeted approaches to attracting women coaches and creating, you know, safer, more inclusive environments so then they can thrive and succeed. Awesome. 
you're coming <laughs> towards the end of the PhD. Yes. Touching, yes. touching wood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the relief in your eyes. <laughs> Is there something like anything that you've learned about yourself through um, this process um, or anything you've learned about yourself as a coach potentially as well um, through research in this space? Yeah, so I feel like I am a different person like from when I have, you know, embarked on this journey. I think, you know, research and gives you, it can be an absolute, you know, pain in the backside as we know, um, but it gives you like these special tools and I think like powers to see things differently. Um, so I feel like that definitely, like, for example, I perhaps would not have really said much back in the day and culturally, again, like, you know, asking questions, you know, speaking up, those things were really, you know, frowned upon for me, like growing up. But I think because of this, you know, education, this whole experience of, you know, doing this PhD and understanding it from like a sociological lens, I have now the capability to see certain things play out. So then when I do sometimes see that injustice happening or playing out, I have the confidence um, in myself to call it out or say something. Um, I still think I'm a bit guarded in that way. So again, in using a Foucauldian analysis, we tend to surveil ourselves. So not only are we always being surveilled by other people, uh, but we tend to surveil ourselves. And sometimes that surveilling yourself, you tend to kind of, um, you know, just be quiet, don't speak up, don't say things. So I think now that I can recognize some of these behaviors, um, I'm starting to change them. Of course, I've got, you know, there's a lot more growing and learning to do, but I definitely think that this PhD has been like a catalyst for me in that regard in, you know, trying to like, you know, speak up or advocate and make some form to, some form of change. Yeah, amazing. Um, and for those who are listening and who might want to um, stay in the loop on the project and the findings and all of the things that you're planning to do with this work, uh, where can they find you? So definitely follow the Women's Coaching Association. We're on all platforms, uh, you know, in terms of um, like, you know, Twitter, the Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, so you can find anything about the Women's Coaching Association on there and Obviously now um, it's me mainly running that, um, so the whole association. <laughs> so it is a bit slow going now um, with um, some of my um, research and other things that are happening. But one exciting development is that the US Women's Coaching Association, we're setting up in America now. So um, so look forward to representing more coaches on a global scale, not just in Australia, um and then hopefully extend to the UK and onwards but um yeah it's so it's set up here as a not-for-profit so hopefully we can um you know deliver some like programs on a on a wider scale so please keep up to date with that on the socials Uh, but yeah you can also follow me on the socials and I tend to share a lot of my like research or things that I'm interested in on you know my platforms um such as like Twitter or and or LinkedIn Um, so make sure you know you can follow me on those things and keep in touch and reach out and ask questions anytime yeah um and I do recommend if if you're thinking of connecting with Aish definitely do she's fantastic and has so much time for um people in football and and women in sport just generally so yeah thank you so much for chatting today was there anything else you wanted to add or anything we may have missed that you feel is important 
no thanks so much for the opportunity to to be on here um and and yeah just to everyone listening just care about women coaches and know that you know everyone has a role to play in this like in the media as a fan as a you know researcher any like or anything like everyone if you care about women coaches and um then more resources can be allocated towards you know helping women coaches and hopefully in future we will see a lot more women coaching sport and they're not going to be an anatomist like a, you know the odd one out but they will also see them in both the women's game and the men's game because right now you know women coaches barely exist in the women's game um but you know they're pretty much next to non-existent in the men's um game so it'd be great to see those um you know numbers shift in the in the positive direction so yeah, please support women coaches. What a note to end on. Thanks again to Aish for hopping on. I hope you guys have found that chat as interesting and as enjoyable as I did. We will have hopefully a couple more of these pods with you soon, if I can get my shikit together, fingers crossed. And, of course, we'll have our pre-World Cup content hitting your ears shortly as well because, oh, my God, it's only a month to go. Other than that, you can find us um, on all the usual pod spots and on social media at the Far Post Pod. And, yeah, we'll be, we'll be chatting soon. See yous.